and we beheld his glory. John's Gospel, this is part 25, and we've reached chapter 6. That's a scary proposition, isn't it? The title I've given this is Jesus' Sermon on the Three Key Questions of Religion. Jesus' Sermon on the Three Key Questions of Religion. I'm starting at John chapter 6, verse 25. I sure hope you have your Bible. Always bring your Bible to church. Should I do it again? You should no more come to church without your Bible than you'd come without your... That's right. That's right in the Bible. John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one in the boat. Do you remember last week? The disciples are out. Jesus comes walking on the water. Okay? That's where we were last Sunday morning. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So wait a minute, they're thinking. But that his disciples had gone away alone. When they left, Jesus wasn't in the boat. 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after Jesus had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're following They saw the disciples leave. They didn't see Jesus in the boat, and people got in boats and started following the disciples. 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What a story that would be. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now Jesus speaks. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So there's something that satisfies eternally, but you can only get it from Jesus. Okay? Seems pretty straight, pretty blunt. And then... Jesus goes a step further and says, for on him, that is, on the Son, God the Father has set his seal. So who's to say Jesus is unique? Well, Jesus says, God the Father says. This isn't, I'm not asking you to vote on this. This is a revelation. 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, and Jesus has heard this before. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Remember, they were there when he multiplied five loaves of bread, fed 5,000 men and women besides. Jesus, if you, we really want to believe if you could just do something. So they said to him, then what sign do you do, 30, that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Jesus is going to pick up on this. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Where's your heads, Jesus is saying. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. See, you'd think Jesus, just pause. You'd think Jesus would say, it wasn't, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was the Father who sent the bread from heaven. But that's not what he does. It wasn't Moses who gave you physical bread. It was God the Father who gives you manna, bread from heaven. In other words, they could no more recognize the life Jesus came to bring than they could get straight that Moses wasn't the one who gave them the bread. Jesus is putting those two things together. They couldn't recognize God working then, and they can't see his final work in Jesus now. Jesus said to them, 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, the person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So it's not manna for Israel. It's life to the world, all the nations. 34, they said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus tries again. Jesus said to them, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. See, don't labor for food that perishes. 27, don't labor for food that perishes. 30, 35, he who comes to me shall not hunger. You see the difference? Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a, it's a, it's a big text, too big really. Chapter 6 records Jesus, uh, his most extensive teaching on himself as the bread of life, broken for the world. This is unique. This is John's unique approach to the meaning of the cross. Because, I don't know if you noticed before, John is the only gospel totally omitting what we refer to as an account of the Last Supper. John never mentions it. Never mentions it. But he does more than compensate because he gives by far the longest teaching on the rich and extensive record of Jesus' own remarks, Jesus' own explanation of his own death. But before the theology, John... John makes note of the strange disappearance of Jesus and the fact that it hadn't gone unnoticed by the crowd wanting to hear them as they wanted to crown him as king after he fed the 5,000. This is the day after, 22 to 25. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So there had only been one boat on the shore that day, 
near Tiberias, the place where Jesus had fed the 5,000. And when the crowd saw the disciples leave in that boat, they, they were alone. Jesus wasn't on board, 22. And John makes nothing of the fact that those who eventually found Jesus across the lake asked him only when he had gotten there rather than how he had gotten there. I would have thought that was the obvious question. No boat. How did you do this? John has bigger things in mind. Chapter 6 is one very involved chapter to study. So here's how I'm approaching today's text. I'm going to thread our text around three questions asked of Jesus and his expanded response to each of them. So so we'll break down the outline of this text under the three issues these questions draw out from Jesus. So question number one, what should human beings seek most and work hardest for in life, and why? That's a good question. Question number two, What should we be doing to please God? To do the works of God. That's in 28 and 29. Question number three. What's so special about Jesus that he alone is the center of God's redemptive will for mankind? And that's in 30 to 35. So that's what we're going to do. Three questions and Jesus' answer to each. Question number one. What should human beings seek most and work hardest for in life, and why? It's in 25 to 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them. He really ignores the question. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me not because of the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then the instruction. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, For on him, God the Father set his seal. So Jesus wastes no time. Our world, yes, our religious world, is impressed to the max with the gathering of a good crowd like the feeding of the 5,000. Surely it's good enough that people come in large numbers. Jesus should be flattered. His handlers should be considered successful. The marketing was good. Surely this is better than not coming to Jesus. But but Jesus does this all the time, and it's amazing we don't maybe pick up on it. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth, the very first very blunt and unflattering words are not so much about who came or how many came, Why? Why are you coming? This seems to be the most important thing to Jesus. I mean, there's no 
as he addresses their questions, there's no little story, no little parabolic lead-in. He doesn't open up with any politically correct chit-chat, none of that. And the reason is, Jesus knows nothing else is important until this issue has been addressed. Nothing good can happen when people come, even if for various reasons they're enthusiastic and large in numbers, but it's no good if they come with the wrong motives. I think John means for us to linger over this picture of the motive-probing Jesus. I think we're meant to see him standing in his church. Cedarview. Picture him as he greets people. You know the doors. You got the door you come in. Picture Jesus standing as he greets people, not with a bulletin and a hug. Picture Jesus as he asks every person who comes into this room. He says, why are you here? What, what, what are you looking for? Why did you come? What motivates your outward devotion of coming to church this October 22nd? I mean, imagine the complaints if the greeters actually asked everyone that question as they came into the sanctuary Sunday morning. Why did you come this morning? And what Jesus pinpoints in our text is the fact that people can be outwardly drawn for reasons less noble than maybe they'd like to admit. You're here because of the the loaves. Is that still on the screen? Because of the loaves. That's why you're here. That's what Jesus says to them. Imagine the nerve. We can come to Jesus with highest-looking faces, appearing to love Jesus, and all the while being more oriented to fulfillment and satisfaction than obeying Jesus in all areas of life. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just saying this is what Jesus says to these religious people. I'm not making it up. So remember, these people... These people, the text says, had literally crossed the sea in boats to get to Jesus. Pretty good. They had seen him multiply the loaves, and they had eaten their full. They actually wanted to make him king. That's what the text said. But they've got it all backwards. Now they've come all that way, but it wasn't love for Jesus himself and his lordship. There's a whole spiritual world of difference between loving Jesus as Lord and loving self-fulfillment. Jesus says they loved being satisfied. He ate the fill of the loaves. They loved being satisfied more than they loved being devoted as servants. And so now Jesus sees, well, they're, they're missing it pretty badly. 
They're still relishing the bread that Jesus had supplied. And so his words, that's why they're thinking of bread, filled with bread, how cool it was. They want to see Jesus, maybe see him do it again. And Jesus says, you only came because of the loaves. He specifically says, because of the loaves. And and as he looks at them, because they were relishing the bread Jesus had supplied, he, he crafts his response to them very carefully around that same image. Look at it, it's in 627. Do not labor for the food. They're thinking of the L-A-O-V-E-S. They're thinking of the loaves. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, there's a reason. You have to look at the text carefully. There's a reason Jesus picks up on the image of food. He says it there. He says it there. There's a reason he picks on the image of food to deal with the bigger subject of misdirected pursuits. Jesus begins his lesson with the truth everyone understands about food, food that perishes. Physical food doesn't permanently satisfy hunger, right? Don't labor for food that perishes. Physical food does not permanently satisfy hunger. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. So now Jesus isn't talking just about physical food. He's using physical food like the bread these people were focused on. Jesus is, in his reply, he's using food as a picture of my my misdirected ambitions and pursuits. That's what Jesus is addressing when he sees they've come for the loaves. So the only way to understand Jesus' point is to hold the thoughts of 26 and 27 together. You got your Bible there to look at? The thoughts of 26 and 27, you have to hold them together. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. There are, there are two because words. Truly, truly, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Those are the motive exposing becauses. True, they were coming to Jesus. True, they had come a long way. True, they were seeking him out. But they were seeking him with the same motive they brought to pursuing everything else they pursued in life. What I mean is their goals were the same in pursuing Jesus as they were in pursuing wealth or food or personal pleasure. And that's why Jesus likens their seeking him with the way they sought physical food. What I'm saying is they were coming to Jesus all right. 
but they weren't attaching themselves to him as Lord. They were attached to their own desires, the loaves. Jesus said they weren't attached to him as Lord. They were attached to the loaves he had given them. They were using Jesus rather than serving Jesus. And if, if, here's the problem, if the pathway of discipleship became rough, if the crowds thinned out, and they sure did, they would turn on Jesus. This is the same crowd that's going to say, crucify him, crucify him. It wasn't working for them anymore. You're seeking me because you got bread for your stomachs. Verse 26. Don't be working. Don't labor for stuff that just fills your stomach or your closet or your garage or your stock portfolio. If you're going to find coming to me to be a fruitful experience, you have to orient your whole heart toward eternal realities. You won't value me properly if you're thronging around me because of the physical bread or the healing or the prosperity or the fulfillment of your earthly ambitions. There's another kingdom that you have to put your heart into. Remember, this is how Jesus starts his sermon to these people. When we come to terms with the real Jesus, we're on the edge of eternity. His words could not be clearer. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for the God the Father has set his seal. Allow Jesus, here's what I have to work on all the time. I'm just like you. I need to allow Jesus daily to recenter my heart's desires. I can't go two days without doing that because my heart is my heart is drawn to things. So is yours, by the way. I need to come with repeated repentance over and over again. I need to plea for him to ongoingly refocus my life. I need to let the Messiah make the change in my heart bigger than the advertisers and the bankers and the entertainers can make it. I need to turn to Jesus. I'm not talking about my conversion. I need to turn to Jesus every day to turn away from pursuits that are way too small, food that perishes. Let me give you the take-home lesson from church. Here's a sentence. You want to write it down or remember it. Jesus cannot possibly make his divine grace as small as my heart's earthly pursuits. Jesus cannot possibly make his divine grace as small as my heart's earthly pursuits. Remember, and remember, maybe this is you, I don't know. That emptiness that you feel right now may well be the very first preparatory step of his divine expansion of your heart. He almost always begins this work by making the things we once treasured feel 
too small. Like a pair of shoes that pinch your feet. There's one more tricky issue in our text under this first point. It's in that 27th verse where it says, do not labor for the food that perishes. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Does anybody else notice how the first part of that verse doesn't fit with the last part? Clearly, we're told to labor for eternal food rather than food that perishes. That's the verb, labor. Then in the last part, we're told that this same enduring food is the food which the Son of Man will give you. And we want to ask, which is it? Do we labor or is it given? And the answer is yes. The truth is, This is the easiest and the most difficult thing to do at the very same time. That's why Jesus actually in another place described it as when you follow him, you take up your cross daily. He does this all the time, Jesus. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Which of you who doesn't hate father, mother, daughter more than me, you can't put your hand to the plow, don't even look back. Okay? Tough. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you go, well, which is it here? How how does this work? This doesn't make sense. Make no mistake, there is incredible labor involved. But the labor isn't to earn eternal life. The labor is labor to stop searching for fulfillment on Don Horbin's terms. That's the labor. The labor is turning off pride. The labor is turning off unexamined greed. The labor is turning off ambitions that can be very stubbornly held. Grace is free when you make the room for it. Okay, question number two. Mind you, that was by far the longest of the three questions, okay? So in case the person beside you appears to be having a stroke right now. Question number two, what should we be doing to please God, to do the works of God? 28, 29, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, to believe in him whom he has sent. So the crowd asked the question that the whole religious world is built around. It's the question every religion on the planet asks. What does it take to make God happy? That's what we want to know. What is he after? And the question they ask, it clearly reveals their approach. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? So everything hinges on on, on what they do. I mean, people have always had a lot of ideas about what they must do. Quit gambling. Turn off internet porn. Stop lying. Put an end to that affair. 
give to the poor, practice more social justice, go to church, maybe even Sunday night. Wow, you'll score points. Everything hinges on what must we be doing? Please notice the way Jesus makes three. I want you to see carefully. This is why you need your text in front of you because these are slight changes. Jesus makes three important questions to the wording of their question. Words matter a lot. Jesus knew just where they had used the wrong words. First, Jesus changed the subject of their sentence. 28, what must we do so that we can be doing the works of God? What must we do, underline we, so that we can be doing the works of God? Jesus' answer, this is the work of God. What must we do so that we can be doing the works of Jesus? This is the work of God. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So just for now, notice, they're talking about their works, we, we. Jesus begins talking about God's work. That's the message for the humanitarian moralist, the religious pluralist, The one thing central in the pleasure of God is the unique, central, redemptive work accomplished by Jesus Christ and the exclusive, conscious commitment to trust in that work and only that work. So Jesus makes it clear that I can't please God at all, nor can you. Can't please God at all if I put any other center of religious attention or effort in the place of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And to make that point even more rigorously, Jesus makes a second change to their question. Then they said to him, 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice the plural. Works. Where's the list? What are the things that need to get done? So Jesus' answer, though, is singular. Jesus answered them, this is the work, no S. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. So pleasing God is profound, but it's not complex. It involves only one life-transforming principle. One must place complete trust in Jesus Christ. Our text says one must, 29, believe in him. That's the work. Now, right at this point, we need to make sure that that phrase, believing in Jesus, doesn't start to wear thin just through use. I think I mentioned before, I, I... You try not to get cynical. I am not overly impressed with all sorts of people who I I don't know that well who will say to me, I believe in Jesus. And usually I'll say something like, that is great. By believing in Jesus, do you mean believing absolutely everything Jesus said? 
what he said about marriage, what he said about material possessions, what he said about except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins, what he said about hell. When you say you believe in Jesus, do you believe everything he said? And you find out they don't. But they like to believe in Jesus. So this is the work. It's to believe in Jesus. That's true. But we need to make sure that we're using that term properly. It means to, to lean into Christ so that it squeezes out anything that would diminish devotion to him. The effects of believing in Jesus are ongoing, self-denying, fruit-producing. But the choice is simple. It's singular. All who would do the work that pleases God have to honor the Son. Three, last question. What's so special about Jesus that he alone is the center of God's saving will for mankind? It's in 30 to 35. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, that's Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Where is it? He's standing right in front of them. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What is so special, question three, what is so special about Jesus that he alone is the center of God's saving will for mankind? It's not accidental that immediately upon hearing Jesus talk about the need to believe in him whom the Father has sent, that's 29, that the people immediately ask, why should we believe in Jesus? Give us a sign, verse 30. Give us a reason to believe in you. And then they go on to make the same mistake that every follower of every other religion will always make when they look to Jesus. These Jewish followers immediately, why should we believe in you? These Jewish followers immediately compare Jesus with other religious prophets and leaders. In this case, Moses. Got bread in the wilderness. Moses. We follow Moses. That's what Moses did. He led for 40 years, fed them with manna. What do you do, Jesus, that we should believe in you? Look what Moses did. And Jesus' answer is so profound and easily missed. He carefully tells them, corrects them, by reminding them Moses didn't feed anybody. I mean, watch the exchange. Watch the exchange carefully as it unfolds. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There's a lot there, but the closing point I want to make is the strange way Jesus finishes his response. He finishes his response with this Jewish crowd. 
would these Jewish devotees be willing to hear Jesus? First, it wasn't Moses that produced the manna. Tells them that. Moses was a great leader, to be sure. Moses was just a mortal man. God sends manna, not Moses. All of which was true enough, and he could have stopped there, but it's not the way Jesus finishes that sentence. He doesn't just say, it wasn't Moses who gave you the manna, it was God. He doesn't just do that. Instead, he, he twists the end of the sentence around. Look at it carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, and it's not a period, it's a comma. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And what, what Jesus means is the comparison between himself and Moses is different from what these Jews might imagine. He's telling them, and you and I, or me, that what God did for a single race of people, Jews, what God did for a single race of people, Jews, for a limited amount of time, 40 years, and with a certain food, physical manna, what he did there, he was now doing, listen, he was now doing eternally for the whole human race, not any ethnic group at all. Manna in the wilderness left people hungry. It also left them grumbling about the food. And it also left them begging to go back to Egypt. Bondage. But those who come to Jesus Christ and fill their souls on the strength of his grace through ongoing trust, humility, repentance, faith, they will find what only he can provide eternal life, life that never, ever perishes. And I just, I wonder, I wonder how many, you know, bored, weary, aching hearts could be in a place like this. And Jesus would go up and down aisles and say, wow, you're a good person, Why? Why do you labor for that which can't satisfy? What are you doing? Do you think he would? I think he would. I think at different times he might speak that to a lot of us. Why, why do you labor for what doesn't satisfy? Why? Hear these words from the ascended Christ. It's in the book of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price, come. Why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Living water without price. And Jesus says, come. Let's pray.